0: Pro Studios. Hi,
1: I'm Samiran. Hi, I'm Nilesh.
2: Hi, I'm Sheetal. And you're listening to 3TV.
1: Three Techies Banter.
2: Hi, I'm Sheetal Choksi. Welcome to 3TV, a podcast where three techies banter. It's a podcast where we explore tech, the non-tech way. It's about how tech and the economics behind tech impacts us today and in the future. It's full of fun information, fun facts, common sense, and is actually spoken in a language that everyone understands, English. And I don't mean English in the sense of the English language, but simple English and not tech speak, as we call it. Today's topic is something that excites, I think, everyone. It has been on the trends list for at least a decade now. Every year, it says that this is going to be the trend for the year. And it continues to be one of the trends that we will track for 2022. What am I really talking about? I'm talking about artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence has been a topic that we've all been excited about. We see it, feel it, hear it in our everyday lives. But let's jump over to Samiran just to understand a little bit about the history of AI.
1: Thanks, Sheetal. And you're absolutely right. This is kind of an area which uh, is exciting as well as uh, scary for a lot of people and rightly or wrongly so obviously AI is very very cool and you know you pick up any list you know there are apparently 119 120 unicorns which can be classified as AI startups and also obviously it's it's super super trendy uh, but anyone you speak to thinks about AI as the uh, dawn of you know world domination by machines and so and I think uh, The fault probably lies uh, somewhere with the fathers of AI who probably oversold this concept. So if you kind of go back in history, I think we've always tried to create uh, people in the image of ourselves and superhuman beings. You know, there were these uh, mechanical giant called Thalos in Crete who used to go around the island three times, guarding it. And that was built by some mythical sculptor. And as you kind of go down history, you know, you have Frankenstein, and you have, uh, you know, Edgar Allan Poe writing about the automated chess player that used to defeat everyone and all that. So, I think the problem or the the issue that we always kind of encounter and or we have to answer for in AI is the definition itself. I think you know when when people called it artificial intelligence, uh, we started thinking of this as something that will be uh, replacing human beings. But essentially, if you kind of dig into the nuts and bolts, a large part of it is really about, uh, you know, high speed computation statistics and all of that. But I guess, you know, it would have been just really, really sad if you just called it super Excel or something, you know, It, it would probably sound like a great fancy detergent as opposed to, you know, a world beating technology. And I think that's where the issue lies. So, again, you know, everyone's watched imitation games. So, we we saw Alan Turing, you know, breaking the Enigma code. And very strangely enough, everybody thinks of it as the Enigma code. Nobody actually remembers the name of the machine that broke the Enigma code. And that's apparently called the bomb machine. So, everybody remembers that Enigma, but, you know, Enigma was the machine that was kind of broken into. And just to use that as an illustration, you know, think about this as, you know, Alan Turing as the intelligence and the machine that did it as his creation that solved the problem you know and that's where you know you will will start seeing the differences the limitations the capabilities and all starting to emerge and the other classical example obviously is the apple and the foxconn example in which you know apple is the company that creates these cool innovative products that nobody wants but is willing to pay an arm and a leg to buy You know, and Foxconn is the company that is super efficient in producing this, you know, cheapest, fastest in record time. But Apple is that innovator, that thing that does cool stuff. And Foxconn is the one that always doing something more productively. So I think, you know, as we keep these differences in mind, we will realize, you know, what constitutes artificial intelligence as the part that is helping us do things in our daily life. And artificial intelligence that we feel will, you know, come and dominate us, which which I think, honestly, is, we are far far away from that.
2: So that's quite interesting, Samiran, because uh, very often, right, uh, and every movie, uh, I think Hollywood loves this uh, call to doom, and then the the power of human intelligence over machines, right? We kind of build those stories. I mean, uh, we build the stories to say that machines will come, they will try and take us over. And of course, humans will succeed. And it's this classic good over evil battle, which is always predicted in movies. And I think that's where a lot of people get their sense and fear of AI, right? I think uh, we can thank kind of Hollywood for it. But the interesting thing is, and like you said, and I like the Alan Turing example too, yes, there was a machine supporting him, but there was intelligence which was human behind. It couldn't have happened without all the people who were involved in it to make the machine crack it. But why is it that you need that artificial intelligence is something that we should talk about. We usually say intelligence is doing things the right way at the right time right? So it's doing the right things at the right time. Now, that in itself is debatable in the world of finance and technology and things like that, because what is the right thing at the right time? What I think differentiates, and I think why it's called artificial, and y'all can correct me, is because human intelligence has a lot of emotions. It has a lot of intuition It has a lot of deductive capability, which I think in the case of artificial intelligence is something we haven't yet taught the machines to do. And therefore, the reasons I think for, uh, and we'll take the Alan Turing example again, it's really because there is limited processing capabilities and limited memory that you need the artificial intelligence piece, right? I think the other thing which differentiates uh, human intelligence from Artificial intelligence is um, emotions themselves. So if you are angry, your decision will be different from if you're in a calmer state of mind. Uh, And that is something that I think getting machines to copy might be a little challenging because then a machine doesn't really understand that emotional scale. The other thing is also the environment, right? I mean, we, a lot of us get impacted by the environment in which we are. And therefore, our decisions are based on that. And that again impacts us. So, if you're tired or if you're under pressure, then the chances are we will take very different decisions from. So, and because the machine is emotionless, it is able to take a certain kind of decision. Even in, in the worst of environments, the machine can take that decision that it's been trained to kind of take, right? And therefore, I just feel that we will have advantages of artificial intelligence only because of the limitations of human intelligence and i i don't know how you feel uh, about that
1: no no so in fact uh, th- there have been uh, a lot of uh, efforts made to deduce all this and uh, it's been said that you know common sense is actually the dark matter of ai so in fact uh, very strangely enough uh, there have been two or three efforts to actually codify common sense you know there have actually been projects so there was one which was called the World Encyclopedia of Common Sense. I think some company called Cyclops or something did it in the 1980s. And there was something called Open Mind Common Sense. MIT did something in the late 1990s. And then there was DARPA did something called Machine Common Sense. There was also debate on whether they actually finished it. But And that also kind of goes back to these two kind of my favorite kind of mathematical paradoxes. You know, one is the, the Polyaani Paradox and the other one is the Morawet. The Polyaani Paradox essentially says that uh, basically we no more than we can tell which means that there is a huge amount of human tacit knowledge which cannot be written down in the form of procedures you know sops and things like that but therefore cannot be taught to ai systems which is which kind of essentially is its limitation the other one is the moravec uh, paradox which actually says that it's comparatively easy to make uh, computers exhibit adult level performance but very difficult to make them teach them child skills. So what do you mean by this is that you can make them do, you know, differential calculus, you can kind of do, you know, uh, square to the hundredth power and all of you, which are very, very computational, heavy, or, you know, describe the equations for nuclear fusion, fission, but you cannot teach them, you know, if it's hot, cold, if it's colorful, if it's tasty. Things. So the theory of that is that all the earlier skills, which are Adult skills are newly acquired, which is essentially five, ten thousand, twenty thousand years old. But these other tacit skills are things that we have learned as a process of evolution. So, which is probably, you know, goes back, you know, maybe a million years also. So, therefore, you know, both of these things kind of, at least today, go against the philosophy of... Uh, AI becoming real. And you're absolutely right. And the the, the fault also very clearly lies with us because uh, whether it is 2001 Space Odyssey or anything else, eh, the, the, the machine is always the villain. So, you know, in science fiction, it's very easy to make the machine the villain, but no sh- such villain exists and, you know, neither is uh, any Terminator coming out of the future to do anything to us, you know. So, I think that's where the challenge lies is that, you know, where do you draw the lines of AI, as you know, and what part of it is truly close to human, but what is really functional, used by companies, enterprises and all. And I think, Nish, you probably have a good perspective on this. And you've also kind of, since you've worked hands-on on on some of this, maybe it'd be good to just, what are we using day-to-day, which is really, actually is AI, and which is very different from, you know, this uh, human replacing AI, which everybody seems to fear and talk about all the time.
0: You know, uh, just, just taking what you just mentioned about those two paradoxes in a very simple language, if one had to decipher it, it is that, you know, the things that can be done effortlessly are very difficult to engineer and things that require effort, actually, for human beings are very easy to engineer. So intuition or just if someone throws a ball at you and you suddenly catch it or duck, you don't require effort. It's just your peripheral vision. It's behavioral in nature and it just can't be engineered. And actually, that would be Patankar's axioms to the paradoxes. right? (laughs) 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 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and 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 to be honest you know uh, hot cold and all that stuff it's so difficult to create motion and it's actually computationally extremely laborious also right i mean whenever we see these uh, robots and all they are constantly kind of they have a very mechanical they are glitchy and stuff like that so effortless acts require huge engineering effort almost impossible to engineer and all the things that require effort are very easy to engineer and that is where your whole paradigm of curing, I mean, the stuff he used to do, you know, lying awake in the night and figuring out uh, stuff may come effortlessly to him even in a dream and uh, it, it can just not be replicated. On to the question that you mentioned, right, Samiran, that what is AI as we experience today versus the... The Hollywood version. So AI we experience today it falls more in the machine learning category. And if I have to go even a, a step lower, it is RPA, right? I mean, so robotics process automation, then which we every day deal with when you are on a call, and you, know, you have this automated voice getting you through multiple prompts. So, so that is something, a very rudimentary form of AI, which actually has been very successful in replicating repetitive tasks and in a way has led to a lot of efficiency. So this is a fantastic application of AI and I think we are all reaping the benefits of it. It has helped us to kind of create skill sets which are meant for uh, you know a next level of uh, thinking and imagination so so that's that's interesting that is the version that we are you know actively looking at in our day to day life now this version you know the this rpa is very basic and rudimentary and then comes ml you know machine learning it leads to essentially what we see as predictive Capabilities when we are on, you know, e commerce website and stuff like that. So it's more on the prediction side rather than actual actions, right? So to delve a little bit more deeper, one has to understand learning itself. And then there are three levels of learning, right? Everything can be termed as machine learning, but essentially you have something called supervised learning, unsupervised learning, and then reinforcement learning so supervised learning in very simple terms you know supervised learning is a way or of generalizing or imagining a function given a input right so a function is able to generalize what would be the output given a certain input so a standard equation y is equal to f x so you give it a lot of training data and over a period it generalizes a function and hence when you give another new input it through this function it generates a output, right? So this is your uh, supervised learning. It requires a lot of what we call tag data, right? So in in uh, this is very much seen in you know mm, uh, I'll say payment industry. I'll take an example from from my past, and you know in payment industry when there is something called credit card fraud and stuff like that, you actually train your models. Uh, you you throw a lot of data at it, and then the model is able to figure out next time a similar. You know, set of tagged data is received, it is able to tell whether it is a fraud or it is not a fraud, right? So, generalizing a function is a supervised learning through tagged data. Uh, unsupervised learning uh, is an area where we are kind of moving into neural networks now, right? So, unsupervised learning is a form of learning which supposedly kids use, right? Mimicry. So, basically, now you're doing pattern recognition. So, you are not giving tagged data. There is again learning happening. So, like you uh, first did this learning through tag, data, input, output, both, and a function is generalized. In unsupervised learning, you also give input and output. The data is not tagged, but the machine, the model, just mimics output. Now, what will happen is there will be a lot of error between the output that it mimics versus the actual output. right? So it keeps correcting the error till the time it is able to predict the output as desired. Right. So now this is unsupervised learning and it is pattern recognition. And this is the neural network area now. And it now you're moving a bit away from the AI as we are exposed to to something, you know, a different form of AI the third aspect that of learning is reinforcement learning so you had uh, supervised learning unsupervised learning reinforcement learning is a very uh, interesting concept you know so in reinforcement learning you consider agent who is exposed to a certain data or circumstances and the idea is that you have to maximize reward so that is reinforcement learning. So if you are able to maximize reward, your learning is reinforced and you should do it more often. If you are not maximizing reward, then you should do it less often. Right? So this is that reinforcement learning part. A classic example that we can give using reinforcement learning is our good old Nash's theory of game theory, whereby you know in Nash's game theory, we talked about it in one of our last episodes, whereby you had These various outcomes, right? And this is the whole economics part behind it. You predicted various possible outcomes, and there is at least one equilibrium where it's a win win situation, right? So here the reward is maximized. So reinforcement learning is a mechanism of learning in which the model. Is able to maximize the rewards, right? And reinforcement learning, I have been exposed to uh, one such example, but this is a field which will develop further. So, we work with a company in France and we were trying to figure out, so we were creating a biometric device, right? And one of the biggest problems that we have with fingerprint or, you know, retinal, more so fingerprint, is that morphology of your finger changes as you age so now we have experienced it on our phones you know sometimes your fingerprint doesn't work and then you you delete that fingerprint put another fingerprint and it's okay because it's your own device and you figure out how to do it but the fact is we were trying to figure out is there a way using AI can I create models that can predict the morphology of the finger so that was one of my personal you know experiences with reinforcement learning Where the team which was involved in consulting with us, they mentioned that the only way was you couldn't do it through your supervised learning or unsupervised learning. You had to do something called reinforcement learning, whereby, again, you are training the model with data, but you have to attach this whole concept of reward and maximize rewards. What happened to that project? I think the idea was that we wanted something which was very deterministic. But at in the end, when you think of these AI models, the outcome is probabilistic. So it was a good learning, but probably not really something suitable for, you know, high security where I am actually trying to access very secure facility. I don't want prediction, but I want a very deterministic way of judging me from my biometric information. It cannot be a model <laughs> per se. So So that was a kind of a quick overview of what we have experienced.
2: So, Nilesh, just to, I think, let's let's break this down and give a slightly more easy example, maybe for somebody to understand the three differences, right? So, um, I don't know, let's take um, something that is catching everyone's attention right now, right, which is uh, self-driving cars. I'm trying to say that if you had to kind of say, what was the supervised learning aspect of the self-driving car? Uh, What is the unsupervised learning aspect of the self-driving car? And what is the reinforced learning? We haven't reached that reinforcement stage because I don't think that we've been able to resolve a lot of what we call the moral issues, etc., on what a car should behave like. But let's at least kind of take an example which people are familiar with. And if you can explain, you know, break that down, because what it does is it allows our listeners to say, hey, okay, I get that from a self-driving perspective. This is what it means.
0: Very interesting and good point. And probably Samiran can also help me out there. Let me give it a shot. It's a very good way. You're right. It's it's difficult. So uh, an example would help. So let's say in a self-driving car, I believe almost all forms of learning will be happening. OK, so I'll, I'll take a stab at each and probably it will not just remain in the area of machine learning in general, but in self-driving car, you are probably also going into the area which will be more tactile and, you know, robotics and all that will also come into play. So I'm not even going to go there. We'll remain in this area, which is learning. See, the structured learning part here would be essentially, as I said, you know, structured learning, you are feeding a lot of data. It's a tagged data. And input at output is given so that in future when similar data comes you are able to predict the output. One way I look at it is that the whole mechanism of a car so so the model or the artificial intelligence within the self-driving car needs to understand that there are n number of things in the car and they do other m kind of activities right so you have a car which has a it has to learn it has a carburetor and carburetor can do xyz it has various elements right so that whole learning is a very structured learning so you have understood the environment very well so that you know which is clutch gear what does each element do and that that part uh, will be used for various other activities right so that's structured for me the unstructured part comes whereby you know uh, it is now the pattern recognition part so so i think in the with the structured thing you have understood what the car is Now, with the unstructured stuff, you have to understand the car in its environment. And that is where the whole pattern recognition aspect comes. So I'll take a take an example. I don't know whether you guys have experienced it. But last time in my recent drive to uh, I was going from Pune to Arangabad and on Google Maps. Suddenly I heard a prompt saying that there is a big object in the road. I don't know whether you guys have ever experienced. it. It was very strange in the sense. A divider is well defined, right, but a big object can be divider which is throughout broken and only first part is there. Something like that actually came so 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 this was a new to me, so i'm I'm just taking a cue from there and saying that the whole unsupervised learning part is where now you are doing pattern recognition. There is no tag data. it is just a big object in the road. so now you are learning environment through unsupervised thing, because there can be no way you can tag all that data, right? When the car is actually going on the road, you cannot tag all that data. You will get some mapping data, but you cannot tag data because every day the environment changes in the same location itself. So that would be my way of giving an example of unsupervised. Now, reinforcement learning, I'm still thinking, I think one of the ways, so I'm going by the Nash's game theory, right? Maximizing the reward function. So, if I had to maximize reward function in a, when we are talking of a driverless car, now you have gone from understanding car, understanding its environment, to understanding or predicting the goal. So, essentially, the reward is when you achieve the goal so the goal of the driverless car probably you know not going into the ethical parts but the goal would be to go from point a to b without hurting the passengers or the people outside the car right and if that happens you're reinforcing that please do whatever you did and keep doing it kind of stuff. Probably this is a simple example of uh, supervised, unsupervised and reinforced.
1: So in fact, uh, Nilesh, you know, it's, it's a really complex topic and I think you've tried to kind of reduce it to a everyday understanding. So very strangely enough that you know this whole thing around driverless cars was seen as the next big thing for a lot of companies, including Uber, Lyft and all. And that was way back in 2015, 16. And as they progressed to this, they realized that it was extremely difficult. And in fact, in 2020, there are a whole bunch of starters like that. There was this Kodiak, there was Bellodyne, and there were a whole bunch of others who actually had huge number of layoffs, as well as uh, you know, some even, of course, went bankrupt because they realized that you know there is nowhere near. It is one thing to kind of run this car in the seeps complex, you know, and it's quite another thing to put it actually on the road. And which brings us to the very, you know, interesting problem of where, again, I think AI and all starts getting a bad name is the the from lab to production, actually, you know, and and which brings us to this whole cost of doing it. So, you know, a lot of things work in the lab. And studies have shown, but for every dollar you spend on building any kind of logic or algorithm in the lab, it will about take you about hundred dollars to actually productionize it. So you know you can just you can just apply a multiple of hundred, and probably it will probably be much more. To the other point, again going back to the driverless car, you know, so a lot of this is about image recognition, recognizing if it's if it's a tree or an electric pole or whatever it is. So, you know, currently, apparently, these systems work at about 11 and a half percent error rate or something like that. So just imagine if you want to bring that down to one percent, which is, I mean, I don't know what the human error rate, maybe it's five. But, you know, if you want to bring it to one percent, estimates are, say that it's it's going to be in the hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. OK, so it's, it's like... Uh, like one hundred billion billion dollars or something that needs to be spent to kind of make it. That's the issue with productionizing. And I think we've seen it through Covid and other things. And I think Andrew Ne also you know talked about it that you know you train a lot of these CT machines, x-ray machines uh, in the lab with a certain data set. It works perfectly. But you take the same algorithm to an older machine just down the street. it just it doesn't work. But if you take the human behind that machine to the older machine, that human is able to perform fantastically. So the you know the the dream that you will be able to uh, replace and do every task is still far away because you know I think we are still struggling with you know you, to teach a machine right and wrong and other things and deciphering is difficult but to just teach something is easy and this was a I think we talked about this earlier is that uh, there this, this New Zealander called Nigel Richards okay and he won the French World Championship of Scrabble twice in a row because he memorized some 386,000 French words, okay? And the beauty of it is that he never knew the meaning of any word. I mean, I think he kind of is the classical machine. You know, you don't know what you're doing, but you're doing it super efficiently. So I I think those are the things that uh, tend to go against uh, AI reaching that level of adoption where this is going to solve every problem I know. And, you know, there have been a whole bunch of AI moonshots, including, you know, I think uh, there was a gentleman who was actually, I think his name is Henry Markham. He was trying to build some human brain, you know, and and after billions and billions of dollars was there. And and this is about published material. So it was called uh, the Human Brain Project, which was kind of funded through the EU and after, I think, 10 years and billions and billions of dollars, it was finally abandoned because nothing happened. Again, same thing happened with uh, the IBM Watson story. You know, it was supposed to be the answer to anything and everything, you know, make nursing efficient, healthcare efficient, and and be the answer to everything. Again, promise not fulfilled. What I wanted to just say is that that was not the fault of AI so much as the fault of the expectations we lay on AI as the problem. So. It's just like human intelligence cannot be transferred that easily. I think the machine also bears the burden of human folly. That you know, we believe that it can solve it. It almost it sounds like uh, you know, you putting your expectations on your children. You know, you think you know everyone's the next Einstein or everyone's going to hire higher T, but that's not happening. Okay. So I think we are doing that on machines, and, and that's where the disconnect is. But at the same time, the fact is that, you know, so McKinsey comes out with this list of lighthouse projects, and there are some companies which are doing fantastic work in automating production, getting efficiency, rationalizing s- supply chains, bringing more visibility uh, across the supply chain, especially in industries like oil and gas, mining, you know, where you couldn't even get to those points, you know. Excavators and oil rigs and what have you, and they're doing some fantastic work. And most of those are actually because you know they start projects small, they adopt, they roll out, and also which is kind of more of a enterprise side of the story. That you know there is enough success stories. I think. So I think I, what I think you're re-
2: both of you are really saying is that what can be trained and what has defined outcomes, right? So. If if a robot has to pick up a certain box of a certain weight and deliver it to a certain aisle, then that is a defined input and a defined uh, output. If both can be defined, both objectives are set, then you can train a machine to do that. However, if you are expecting, have defined the input, defined the output, and you've given the machine enough training and enough data points, like Nilesh said, on both supervised and then done unsupervised learning with it, the chances are that it is going to really rock it. So that's one level, right? So the fact that your IBM Deep Blue, whatever could beat your chess player is because it taught it saying that if this is the input, this and this is the outcome, then figure it out. And it could learn every single chess move that was possibly there and play the best possible, right? Where it starts to kind of fall on the cost-benefit analysis today is the way I'm seeing it, right? Where uh, should I invest in it? How much will we invest in it, et cetera, is when you really have to use abstract thinking, when you start creating chaos within the, you know, the, the definition of the input and the outcome, where human intervention happens over there and there are multiple options or there's multiple tasks to be done at the same time. That's when the machine starts to fail because its ability to multitask, because multitask also means now multiple inputs, multiple outputs, all of that, right? So when it has to multitask, that is not the stage we have reached as yet.
0: So, Sheetal, that's a good example. In deep learning, we are able to do multitask in a way that it does uh, do a lot of uh, layered uh, data it takes and even the connections between data, you know, that is what the whole deep learning is about. But let me, you know, what Samiran mentioned, I'll tell you where it will fail, you know, one uh, example, again, the same example I gave, but now let me put the economics lens and the error lens. Which Samiran provided. So I told you about this thing that, you know, your finger morphology keeps changing with age. And I need to build a system that is going to identify uh, Nilesh through the ages, right? And always be absolutely accurate now the issue was that uh, when we started looking at this uh, you know whole uh, learning aspect you know and doing reinforcement learning there was this error margin and like Samiran mentioned you know if my error margin is let's say 10-12 percent and I want to reduce it because I want to identify the person always and correctly and coherently the amount of investment was going to be ridiculous I would just drop it right I'll just go from fingerprint to retina because retina uh, is still there and it is, it is more deterministic and doesn't, uh, doesn't change with age. So I think one of the things that we are doing is it's like, you know, uh, it, with blockchain also, people look at it as a hammer in search of a nail, right? So you don't have to look at AI as a solution in search of a problem. It has to be a use case driven approach. And I think we have absolutely cracked it, like you mentioned, Sheetal, you know, when it comes to this whole, you know, we love uh, all these prediction algorithms. I mean, they do sometimes seem like violating our privacy, but we do love them, you know, but uh, and and that's all good. So I have a feeling the way ahead would be that slowly and steadily uh, the cost benefit analysis will also tilt in favor of higher levels of AI. And we'll see uh, them also being productionalized to say
1: so I think I actually kind of was trying to look for this and I found this so to the point that you know obviously we don't have current compute and current uh, logic or whatever that breakthrough will be will it be quantum computing whatever it will be that we break this impasse but currently we are not able to make that leap and you know there's Richard Feynman had tried to explain this and he said that there is a fundamental difference between labeling things and understanding him and I'm going to try and just read this out verbatim because you know I don't want to interpret Fenman. you know that would be like a completely crazy so he said that my father taught me that you know like look at that bird it's a brown-throated thrush but in Germany it's called a Hasselflügel, and in China they call it a Chungling and even if you know all those names for it you still know nothing about the bird you only know something about people and what they call that bird Now that thrush sings and it teaches its young to fly and flies so many miles away during the summer across the country, nobody knows how it finds its way, and so on and so forth. So there is a difference between the name of the thing and what actually goes on to make the thing what it is. So I think he was essentially trying to say that you know you know we are nowhere near building artificial general intelligence here. Just take it easy.
2: (laughs) So the 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 interesting thing is that even John McCarthy and I was reading up on uh, him and he's one of the founders of AI. He was asked this question, saying that when do you think AI will kind of happen? And he he actually says, well, somewhere between five and five hundred years. And he says we'll need several Einsteins to make it happen, right? And and that's quite interesting because, like I, you know, I started off with saying ten years in a row. I think AI has been on our trends list, right? Every year things have come and things have gone, but AI has stayed. And for m- many more, if there were lists prior to 10 years, I'm just taking a decade as an example. And and it's interesting, it's one of those trends which seems to excite people, which people are not willing to let go, right? There have been so many trends which have been on the list and dropped off and we've not even bothered to look at them. But this seems to be one of those uh, interesting trends, which continues to live and continues to get investments and continues to excite the world of technology as much as it seems to excite regular consumers, right? The fact that, like Nilesh saying that, you know, Google could tell me that there is a big object on the road. If that became a way of life, it says there is, you know, this problem. And in India, that'd be a great thing to have. Imagine that's such a fantastic thing. I I don't care as a consumer if it's machine learning or deep AI or, you know, it is, artificial general intelligence the fact that it's it's making my life simpler is good enough right so in fact the interesting thing is
1: you know this whole thing about trends coming and going so you know if like the chinese we think about this in hundreds of years right so ai actually from when it kind of formally started in the 50s let's assume it's kind of gone through what we call two ai winters where there was no funding sometimes in the 70s and 80s and then it again picked up so You know, there are periods of disillusionment with AI, and then there are periods when things really accelerate. I think World War II did that with it. Then after that, there was great promise. And now we are back and it will happen. And now in 2022, we are saying, you know, that we need to find alternatives to big tech. Government will start regulating it. And, you know, we'll have all kinds of... As a promising technology, it's definitely out there with other things. Uh, But, you know, every so often, like, you know, we kept saying, you know, that, we kind of put so much the burden of expectation on it that it fails and then, you know, it has that cascading effect that obviously once funding dries up, you cannot invest and then, you know, that error rate thing it cannot be solved and till somebody else does something, you know, again, really cool and, uh, you know, like I, I can tell you, you know, if you kind of go into some of these things that, you know, there are apps where, you know, you, if you take a plant and you take a picture, it can actually tell you what plant it is. It's such a great way to teach kids uh, how to, you know, about geology. Then, uh, there are tools that, you know, some big tech company was researching it that, you know, the, instead of, to find the spread of diseases, instead of uh, testing humans, you test mosquitoes because they bite humans. So, you know, if you figure that out, you'll know what is the spread of this. So there's tons of stuff going on, you know, and it's really promising. How we industrialize it, what will click, you know, like we talked about, like the internet was made for professors, but it became something else. So maybe, you know, there is some crazy thing about AI happening somewhere that we don't know you know, which will kind of change this whole world forever.
2: Yeah so we've got to figure its tipping point and I think it will find its own tipping point right
0: I think in this episode probably we can cover just this much because I, this this topic has so many other paradigms and so many other aspects that we must cover so today probably we talked about classification understood a little bit of uh, application of AI but I think we briefly touched upon it but the whole aspects of ethic and uh, you know how they apply to AI and the whole benefit cost benefit and economics needs to be kind of delved into through another episode of 3tb let let us end this episode with a promise of another one which will continue this discussion about ai if you liked our banter please share this episode don't forget to follow the show we are available on all major podcast platforms and if you are on apple podcast please do leave a rating and review It uh, helps the podcast grow. See you next time with another episode of AI on 3TV.